A lot of the confusion around this was sort of an exponential effect of A, a lot of people paying attention to the quarterly like refunding. Way more than usual. Yeah, that have never looked at it before. And that perfect storm is coincided with the TBAC changing the format in which they released the information this month for yeah. the first time. Good morning, everyone. This is the first episode of Curvy Enthusiasm in 2024. I'm joined today by Jeremy Saunders. Jeremy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I have a question for you. No, um, no pop quiz. <laughs> no, it's not a pop quiz. It's not a pop quiz. What is your favorite planet? So what's your favorite planet? I was going to say Jupiter. Okay, so you just came down from Jupiter, right? You just landed. It's a great trip. And the only barometer you have on the health of the economy is to look at Z4, Sofer, and Z4, Cora. Week over week, uh, both have reprised 20 basis points. What hawkish innovation would you think was introduced in the past week to make them reprice that way? Because you didn't get any, is my point. You did not really get anything. Okay. And so I bring this up because in a week where you had more or less an on as expected outcome from central banks, I want to start the episode talking about central bank confidence and the confidence towards reaching that goal of inflation moderate towards target and what that means for policy. So let's just start with the Fed. What happened last week in your view? So I think there's a lot of cross currents in the markets right now. People obviously have some PTSD around regional banks. And I do think that positioning came into the week reasonably short. And so you've got some signals from the market that are a little confused. But I think if we're going to talk about the Fed, they pretty much did what people would have expected them to do, which is broadly confirm their outlook from the previous set and perhaps push back a little bit on the uh, aggressive timing that was in the market. I mean, look, the Fed is a inflation targeting central bank, and I in, measured inflation has come down quite a lot, particularly in the US. You've got this weird... But then they also have the other side of the mandate, which on Friday we saw was, at least on the surface, pretty strong. Yes, but the other side of the mandate is maximum employment. Yeah, It's not full employment. It's the most you can get at your price level target. And so I think, you know, the, the Fed's got this scenario where measured inflation has come down quite a lot and is arguably at or very close to their target. But the growth picture, the surrounding macro data is not confirming the inflation measurements if you believe in a output gap or Phillips curve uh, world. If you are a new Keynesian and you believe that economic slack opens up uh, a reduction of prices, you're not seeing that. And so the question is, if you go forward in time and you get inflation at your target and strong growth, what do you do? And my position is they're going to cut. Well, listen, I don't think anything we saw this past week, whether it's US GDP or jobs or what Powell said, means you don't cut. I just think it's more in line with at least the way that we've been thinking about the world, which is four cuts this year and they start kind of June, July. But let's just talk about the divergence we're seeing between that story and Canada. Because in Canada, arguably, you have a much more softer macro backdrop. You know, growth has basically been zero since the start of last year, albeit you did get some recent data that was okay that we'll talk about. But against that, you have high inflation compared to the US. Like on a measured basis, Canada is higher inflation than the US, a worse growth picture, and economic slack that is now getting larger, not smaller. Yeah, so two things on that. So the bank has the opposite problem, right? Which is model inputs to your Phillips curve or your output gap model suggest that inflation should be lower, but measured inflation, and particularly in the somewhat arbitrary bespoke measures that they've chosen to focus on, are frustratingly sticky. And so I think both of these 
both central banks are taking on board the lessons of the last three years, which is to say, we can't be as model driven as we have been in the past. And to some extent, we have to trade what's in front of our eyes. Uh, and in the US, what's in front of their eyes is inflation, and particularly the measures they've decided to focus on have gone down quite a lot. And yeah. in Canada, inflation, and particularly the measures they've decided to focus on haven't gone down as much. But I do want to caveat that by saying that we're getting, I think a lot of us have gotten distracted by these very narrow measures, trim and median three-month annualized in Canada and the six-month annualized core PCE in the US. If you take a 30,000-foot view of what's happened to inflation in both countries, actually, the US has had more price-level appreciation than Canada. And the 12-month rates on almost every measure, including trim and median, which the Cleveland Fed puts out, have been higher in the U.S. for almost the entire Well, that's the thing. If you look at a like-for-like basis, you know, it is not clear to me that what the short end is pricing in, i.e. that you need more Fed rate cuts relative to Canada, makes a ton of sense. And so one of the things that we've been asking ourselves is on this idea of these, you know, tailored, bespoke measures of inflation, why does Canada look so different? And so remember that at least CPI trim in Canada is at a 20% level. And so you're removing 40% of the basket. There is literally no other country in the world that comes that close to removing so much from the distribution. And the problem is, of course, is that all the disinflation is at the tail. And so if I were to take a, a, a different measure and do like Canada trim 10, you know, you are even you're, you're putting back in shelter components, so you're putting rent back in, but it is running at 3.3 three, six-month annualized versus trim at 3.8. And so that puts you basically flat to where the U.S. is. But the point is that, you know, that last mile problem is much harder for TIFF than it is for Jay. And so I think that is something that at least the short end has not accurately priced. And the, the most interesting thing about the price action last week is that Canada sold off one for one with the U.S. on largely U.S. innovations. Yeah, I think that's partly a function of how Canada gets priced, which is uh, equals a fixed number to the U.S. <laughs> until someone tells the market that it ought not to be right. But that's uh, what that's the theme, right? Like the past three years, when Canada looks wrong, it's the U.S. reprices to Canada, right? And like that—that's why this is a little bit different right now. So let me ask you this: if you if you came in next Monday morning and you said, "Ah, now it makes sense," what what does the Canada curve look like in the front end? To me, the Canada curve in the front end has at least 125 priced and has it at least a quarter ahead of the Fed. Like that to me, I'd be like, you know what? This is much more realistic. Uh, just speaking to the fact that whether you believe in an aggressive TIF or not, that the data is just worse in Canada, that you have a more levered economy in Canada. And therefore, you know, keeping policy at restrictive levels for that much longer doesn't make a ton of sense. You have twos, fives steeper. You have twos, five tens cheaper than dollars. To me, that is a, a, a something that would remediate where I see the problems in the curve. Yeah, totally. I think I think what what you're trying to say and what I agree with is that the things that Canada is focused on in terms of measured inflation are providing a perhaps false picture of higher inflation, and that at some point or more the, persistent inflation. Yeah, and that at some point the the data is going to catch down the the arbitrary slice of data we're looking at is going to catch down to reality yeah. and present the true picture. Well, I think there's a risk, you know, that the Bank of Canada kind of abandons CPI <laughs> trim and goes back to CPI X8 world. They really kind of, it's going to be a tough uh, communications exercise to... Like, well, you know, this whole, you know, we redid these and they'll say, look, we, we trained our models pre-pandemic. They've already dropped common because of the problems with it. The way that trim is, like I said, it's, it's ignoring all of the disinflation. And so are you really in this type of environment going to ignore that at least... 10% of that tail, which is really pushing inflation down. 
I don't know. But let's just talk about the data for a second, right? We're fresh off very strong jobs report. I said earlier superficially, because I think the, the reality here is that you had that polar vortex. It was cold. Hours worked was low. That means the wage pie is being divvied amongst a smaller amount of hours. And so wages look much stronger than they did. And in fact, if you were to look at full year growth in the United States, almost 85% of jobs were part-time jobs. Like That, to me, does not scream a very tight labor market. I think that some of the, the surrounding data, like average hourly earnings and the work week that have got uh, a lot of people a buzz on uh, various social media and research notes is we can take those with a grain of salt, but it's really hard to argue that the data wasn't strong. Well, there was listen, very strong revisions. Unequivocally, you had yeah. a large number of jobs being produced. And I think, you know, the question, and I think Goolsby talked about this, it's like, well, wait a second, even in a world where average hourly wages weren't that strong, you're generating all these jobs, it, you have to start out questioning productivity because productivity is the buffer that eats inflation. That's something that's the Canada problem. We don't have productivity, which is why wages are so important. Where in the US, you have massive productivity, yet why are you absorbing so many jobs? And so in the absence of that productivity, then you have a real issue. There is a seasonality issue around January. Clearly, the last uh, couple of Januarys have been strong. I mean, the traditional seasonal pattern of you hire a bunch of uh, seasonal workers in September, October for the Christmas shopping season and you let them go in January is clearly going away. Now, that's not to say the number wasn't strong. The unadjusted number was still 100K above uh, what it had been for the last couple of yep. years. What is a seasonal adjustment meant to do? It's meant to try and let you compare. Apples uh, to apples. Yeah, but so like a January to a February to a March when there's these things, you almost have to look at the unadjusted number compared to previous Januaries at this point because I think the seasonals are having uh, quite a lot of trouble. Quite a lot of trouble is not the right word, but... The for, interpretation of the yes, seasonals is hard. Exactly. And, the, and even in a market like Canada, like remember, Canada opened up later than everyone else after the pandemic. And so we had this weird pattern where we went into lockdowns at the start of the year and we opened them up in the spring and summer. And so the January seasonals were just decimated. And you, you saw that in 2021 and 2022, but then 2023... You know, you had this massive jobs report, and so the seasonals seem to go the opposite way. And I think that leaves me very concerned about jobs this Friday being another, like, <laughs> just disgustingly blowout number. I, I tend to agree. I think the seasonal <laughs> is going to be a big problem in Canada as well. So, Ian, make CAD GDP make sense. So, listen, it was very strong. And it seemed to be that more growth is still occurring on the supply side of the economy. And so just for context, remember, the Bank of Canada had 0% growth in Q4. If I look at the numbers that came out you know, last week, you're tracking 1-2 for the quarter. The bank's pretty good at its near-term forecasting. And so I'd, I'd be very surprised if they were that off base. But the data is telling us what's telling us. And you're tracking 1-2 annualized for the fourth quarter of last year. The handoff is 1% for Q1. What I think, though, doesn't change, even with that level of growth, is that it's all coming from supply side. There's not a lot of demand coming from this growth numbers. And so I'd be more concerned if I could see the demandy stuff contributing more to growth, but that's not what we're seeing. And so if anything, within the context of you have slow growth in Canada, you have inflation, that's not telling the full range of the story because you're not measuring it accurately. And the strong growth is a function of really supply side growth that will bring down future prices. It even exaggerates this idea that how, how wrong the cross-market curve is. But we are going to need some 
confirming data to, yeah, like, to fix that. And, and Friday's potentially massive yeah. job support is not going to be the one yeah. to do it. And so let's just take a step back because, you know, the bond market prior to the Fed last week did have a very large test and it passed that test. And that was the quarterly refunding. And so in the event, um, you know, we found out that there's this weird surplus that was unexpected. That's large tax receipts. And so the big story here is that coupon supply is doing nothing wrong in terms of expectations, relatively tepid growth. But the real story is that bill supply is now quite negative. And so walk me through what you think this means. Yeah. So I think uh, a lot of the confusion around this was sort of an exponential effect of a a lot of people paying attention to the quarterly like way more than usual yeah that have never looked at it before and that perfect storm is coincided with the tback changing the format in which they released the information this month for yeah. the first time if you go back q2 is always negative bill supply i mean it's a seasonal factor yeah. right the treasury gets in a bunch of tax receipts in March and April, and it's flush with cash, and it absorbs that by uh, net negative issuance of bills, and then throughout the rest of the year, it issues bills. And so, I don't think that this was particularly unusual in the context of other Q2s. And what it suggests is that at the margin, the U.S. the U.S. Treasury received higher tax receipts than what they were forecasting previously. But people are looking at a number that went from seven hundred to minus two hundred, and yeah. they're going, "Oh my god!" And yeah, I mean. <laughs> I don't think it's that sensational. No. What this says is, looks like they'll be able to keep uh, coupons constant for the next couple of quarters. They're not forecasting much beyond that. Ultimately, at some point, coupons will need to go up. But this is not really going to be a term premium. The the supply story in the U.S. is not going to be the deciding factor on term premium for the next quarter or two. For sure. Like It is not a Q3 23 where the supply was so much larger than expectations that it exaggerated every build into term premium, right? Like that is not what you're yeah. seeing right now. And if anything, I would say that term premium relative to like five to five to break evens, term premiums probably look a little bit too high, particularly on the market like Canada. But like, do you have any thoughts on how this net negative bill supply interacts with RRP and your timing on QT? Yeah, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to extend the, the duration of QT, right? There's an interesting dynamic between the amount of money in the RRP is kind of like a reserve asset for absorption of supply. And as long as there's cash in there, then it extends the ability of QT to continue. And so the fact that there's net negative bill supply means there's $200 billion now that is looking for a home. And that will probably go back into the RRP and that will be reserve money to come back out in Q3 when they ramp up bills again. And so all this means that the urgency around QT is delayed. Yeah, is delayed. Okay. I I agree with that. So so speaking of uh, front end plumbing mechanics, (laughs) let's talk talk about Cora for a second. Um, I love this subject. So listen, I think. It's a pretty. This easy is going to be interesting to like at least a dozen people. I'd say eleven people on this podcast are going to be like, "This yeah. is spot on." Yeah. Look, the the issue core is we know what's happening, right? You have this persistent deviation of short term interest rates from target, and that's a function of a couple things. You know, on the surface, it's this idea that the Fed has talked about is like maybe there we are below the ample level of reserves in Canada. Which is crazy to me because there's 100 billion of reserves and pre-pandemic we had uh, a system that had zero reserves. And so why now are you seeing this persistent deviation? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the first reason, which is relatively simple to understand, is that when I look at the composition of who owns these reserves, 
irrespective of the fact that it's $100 billion. It's owned by too few people. And because it's owned by too few people, there are other members of the system that need cash. And with these reserves earning overnight money, there's not a huge amount of incentive to trade that flat. Okay, And so you have this upward push. Number two is that when you think about anchoring QT and you think about that liquidity distribution that the bank should be in different around, is five basis points that big of a number to interrupt the transmission of policy? I don't think it is, but it's enough that it's got the bank's attention. And so the bank has been in doing these overnight repo operations. And recently, like the end of last week, they reintroduced the receiver general balances. The receiver general balances, the interesting thing is if you look back at Bank of Canada research, it literally says these things will do absolutely nothing for GCU or or anything for Cora. And there's zero correlation between that and deviations from the target rate. And so what is clear to me is the bank is trying to buy time. And that time is they're trying to wait, at least in my opinion, till you get to that period March to April where BA runoff gets quite large, like 35, 40 billion. And maybe that's a period of time where you get that reinvestment back into repo. And all of a sudden you're in a world where you're now 502, 503, and that's the new 5%. And so I think similar to what you just suggested on the timing of the US announcing a QT cessation, there is zero urgency, even at 505 persistently in my mind, that the bank Canada has to stop QT. Because it's not even clear to me that when you stop QT, Core doesn't have to go back to target. Like there's no mechanical reason why this has to go back. And so you need something bigger and you need to learn how your participants are trading in this new world. And I think there's a question about like, why, do, why does this even matter? Right. Yeah. I mean, just for context, we're for the non-plumbing uh, oriented. We're, we're talking about a policy rate that is setting at 505 versus a target rate of 5%. So there's a five basis point difference. Does anyone other than repo market participants really care about this? No, I mean, I think it's interesting because for a lot of people that aren't a fan of short end plumbing, on the surface, you can make a really bad story about this. You could say there's really crappy assets in the Canadian system, collateral is losing value, and therefore the price of repo. Oh, there's definitely a, this is and a, it's sensationalist, right? Like it's not true. This is a prime zero hedge. <laughs> yes, correct, type, yeah. correct. It is. Uh, it is not imminent correct. collapse. Imminent, and so I, I do think that there's a reason to think about it. But you could also make the case that in a floor system like how monetary policy operates right now, if five percent is your floor and five twenty five is your ceiling. The fact that this isn't trading at five and an eighth is probably a win by itself. So is it six beeps through or is it five beeps over? Like choose your poison how you want to narrate this. And in the U.S., the target range right now is five and a quarter, five and a half. And you've got a constellation of target rates and none of them trade right in the middle. So Correct. Correct. So anyways, that, that's why things going on with Cora. But, you know, what's interesting is that in the Bank Canada meeting, you didn't have a QT announcement, which for some reason some people expected. Obviously, they weren't reading our research. And then you have this huge volatility in two-year swap spreads. So let's just parlay this, parlay, into Canadian swap spread talk. Give me your view. So spreads have gone down quite a lot. I think that's the, the high-level description of what's happened. And so the question is, is that a made-in-Canada story or something else? There's definitely made-in-Canada elements to it. But I do think it's very interesting, especially in the Valley, that the net change in Canada since, you know, start of October when spreads starting going down, it's actually very similar to the U.S. And that to me suggests that uh, what's been happening is not particularly homegrown and is the result of a larger move. I think you've had tenor specific homegrown reasons, right? Yeah, like, for sure. Like twos in Canada versus twos in the U.S., swap spreads, uh, particularly in the back end as well. Yeah. 
And so I guess, you know, we talked about the refunding announcement, but one of the things we didn't talk about is uh, you have the buybacks now and at the margin buybacks operate like QE and should rich in some of that deep off the run product. And that also spills over into Canada and you're going into, at least in dollars, very strong swap spread seasonals in February. It's because of all the issuance that you tend to see from the financials early on in the year. You have asset purchases, cash richens, and I think that spills into Canada. So like I like a, like a steeper spread curve in Canada. I don't know what your view is. <laughs> I like the opposite, Ian. Okay, do you? <laughs> yeah. Like two tens? Yeah, I do. I, okay. I, I mean, I think we've had a big move and it's not been Canada specific. And that big move has basically been that rates rallied a lot and that move got chased by various account types. It got chased by bank treasuries who were worried about missing out on the big rally. It got chased by um, yeah, model-based account to uh, trade momentum. Uh, and it got chased by, let's call it, speculator accounts that are sometimes trading a mean reversion strategy and sometimes momentum strategy. And we got quite a lot of downward momentum in the level of rate. So I think that explains a lot of the move down in both Canada and the US. And the question is where to from here? Uh, my view on the level of rates, especially in the belly, is probably more range bound now because there's quite a lot of uncertainty. Yep. Uh, we've had our repricing of the tails of monetary policy from the Sort of right tail to the left tail. And now you got to get back in the middle. Yeah, neutral so, has to be the yeah, proxy exactly. to spit that out. But meanwhile, you, now you've got homegrown dynamics in Canada. So two-year two spreads, why are two-year spreads so high? Uh, two-year spreads are so high, I think, mostly because mortgage production in Canada is focused in a two- and three-year area. Uh, mortgages are a, a long-duration asset for bank balance sheets, and which they hedge, uh, and they hedge in derivative. Now, the question is, is that going to change anytime soon? I think we've just been discussing how uh, while we think ultimately the bank is going to lower rates quite substantially near to medium term, let's call it before June, it's unlikely they get enough clarity in the data for that to happen. And so while you've got this scenario persisting of if you take a variable mortgage right now, you're paying an 8% or 7% coupon. If you take a three-year mortgage, you're paying a five and a quarter coupon. If you take a five-year mortgage, you're paying a 499 coupon. What is the average Canadian going to choose. They're going to take threes all day long. Exactly. All and so long. I don't see much reason for that dynamic to change. And so I think that keeps two-year spreads relatively bid on the curve. Against that, I think there's still a dynamic of bank liabilities are longer dated. And now they're trying to change that. Uh, if you look at what uh, Canadian banks have been doing issuance-wise over the last three months, they've tried to skew it a lot shorter dated. So you've yeah. seen a lot of two-year and three-year issuance and, uh, and much less uh, five-year bond issuance than you had over, like let's say, the course of... But your biggest liabilities are deposits. Yeah. That has not gone so, down in exactly. So some of that is unavoidable. And I think that continues to keep pressure on the belly of spreads. And I think there's some other interesting dynamics out there with like uh, Canada mortgage bond that are also going to keep pressure downward on belly spreads. Yeah. And then also, I think that my view on Canada versus US duration is that ultimately in the belly, we should rich in because the growth dynamics are much less favorable in Canada than the US. And the last thing I'll say about all this is that part of the cheapening, uh, both in Canadian belly duration and also bid to belly spreads in Canada over the last month or month and a half has been a result of seasonal issuance patterns in um, provincial bonds. And a lot of those issuers now are going to go into blackout over the next month or so as um, the, the major issuers have uh, budget updates coming in March and they won't be issuing very much ahead of that. So I do think at least in the, the near term here, their uh, spreads should be under pressure, particularly in the belly. The two-year spread trade should continue to confound. Um, listen, I, I don't disagree with a lot of that. You know, for what's worth, 
my favorite trade right now, and it continues to be just the cheaping of the belly in cash. You know, twos, fives, tens to me, I think there's a very big discrepancy between the shape of fives, tens versus the shape of twos, fives. And five ten still looks much too steep to me. And so even in a world where you have this repricing of neutral, I think that you are still subject to risking some of the, the whites and the early data reds repricing faster. That is a two five steepener. You know, we're not agreeing in terms of our view on the belly. And so let's just see who's right. But well, that, one of us is going to be right. One of us for sure is going to be right. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see, who, see how that turns out. But two fives, tens, I still think makes the most amount of sense because right now like the level of duration to me is actually getting close to a buy you know you have repriced a lot but pc1 relative to let's say pc3 like your butterflies is your highest correlation so if i'm wrong i don't mind doing in butterfly space as opposed to being just outright long outright short look we've talked for a lot it's pretty long podcast first one of the year so i guess it kind of had to be so thank you for everyone for listening in each week and by each week i mean you know whenever we actually do a podcast we'll try and do it more frequently but uh i hope you enjoy it i hope you have a great week ahead and remember there are no bonds harm in making of this podcast the information and data contained here and has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments to discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. For more information about these legal entities and about the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com. Speakers on this podcast are not research analysts and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department nor should it be construed as a research report. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individuals, except where the speaker expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to these instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice.